0: So are, are you familiar with the Christmas classic song that goes like this? See if you recognize it. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. You know that one? Heard That one's kind of a classic on music. You hear it every Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. The irony about that song is that it was written and it was recorded in the middle of World War II. It was written in, in 1943, recorded in 1944, so when the song was released, troubles were not out of sight. It was not a little Merry Christmas year for most of the people in the world. Another irony about the song is that the, uh, the artist who recorded it originally, it's been covered by many, many people, but the artist who recovered it cor- uh, initially was, was Judy Garland. And maybe you know her. Judy Garland was the actress that plays Dorothy in the original Wizard of Oz. And uh, she was quite a celebrity back then. But what's ironic is that she's singing about having your troubles out of sight. Judy Garland was a woman who never lived with troubles far from her. They were not out of sight. She was a celebrity, but in spite of that, she she battled long-term drug addiction. She saw four marriages end in divorce. She tried to take her own life at one point and finally she died of an accidental drug overdose at the age of 47. So here you have this song that's wishing everybody a merry little christmas that your troubles will be out of sight, sung in the middle of World War II by a woman who had troubles that seemed to never let her go. Troubles were not out of sight back in 1944. And troubles are not out of sight this year in 2020 either, are they? But you know, troubles were not out of sight on the very first Christmas. They were not out of sight the year that Jesus was born. And in the ensuing years, when he was just a young infant, a little toddler, all those years, troubles were not out of sight. In fact, the New Testament, when it gives us the brief accounts of Jesus' birth and his early years, they do not gloss over, they do not hide the troubles that were going on in the world and in Jesus' own little family at that time. In fact, uh, today I'm going to take you to a passage that just reminds you of some of the difficulties, some of the troubles that were haunting Jesus and his family when he was born. Troubles were not out of sight then, and today we're going to see that because the Bible shows us. It's a rather grim picture, I have to tell you. But I'm taking you there because in the midst of the troubles, the writers of the New Testament point to a larger truth. That gives us hope. It lights up our darkness. It brings hope to our hearts. And today I want you to see how even when troubles are very much in view, even when they're not out of sight, there is something that you can hang on to that will give your heart hope, that will give your life stability, that will actually allow you to have a merry little Christmas. The passage that I'm going to bring you to today is found in Matthew's gospel. So would you join me there? Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 13 down to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Today I want to talk to you about Merry Christmas in a broken world. How do you have a Merry Christmas when the world seems broken, when troubles are not far from our sight, when they're very much in view? I think God's Word points us to a hope that gives us the ability to rejoice, to find joy this Christmas And throughout the year so let me pray for us and then i want to talk to you about merry christmas in a broken world let's pray father this morning as we gather we have much to praise you for we rejoice that we're coming close to the end of the semester that you have kept us healthy and and strong you've allowed us to uh, endure and persevere and accomplish things i thank you that you're helping the students even now as they look to finish this semester I thank you that you are Emmanuel in Jesus. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, Lord, we would confess to you that as we look out on the landscape of our world, we see lots of troubles. They're near and they're far. They're big and they are, don't seem to be going away. They're not out of sight. So, Lord, today would you bring into our sight the truth that's revealed in your word that gives us hope in our hearts and stability for our lives. I pray that my words will stay closely aligned with your word and that your spirit will take it and use it in our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pick up with me in uh, Matthew chapter 2. Let's look at verse 13. It says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Those words remind us of a rather sobering truth as the story of Jesus' early years, probably not his very birth year, probably a little bit later than that, but the story of his early years turns very troubled. And in those verses, we find a truth that we'd like to ignore, but we can't. It's always in sight. I put it this way. In those verses, I see this truth. Jesus was born into a world where worship is way too fleeting. Jesus is is born into this world and worship, which was going on just shortly before, seems to vanish. Worship is way too fleeting. Jesus was born into a world where worship is fleeting. I say that because verse 13 begins, it says, now when they had departed, who's they? Well, you look back a verse and you realize it's the wise men, it's the magi. Now we're familiar with that part of the Christmas story, right? We know that Magi came from the east. It's a powerful story. Here you have these Gentiles coming to fall down and worship the newborn Jewish king. In fact, in verse 11, it says, and going into the house, By the way, that's why we think this probably happened sometime after Jesus' birth. They're not in a stable here. They're in a house, right? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We love that picture. If you've seen uh, nativity crushes, uh, little nativity sets, often we kind of bring in, we merge the story of the shepherd and the worry, and merge the story of the magi. And there are these regal-looking kings, these, these guys that seem to have a bearing about them, and they're bringing gifts, and they're standing there. Well, that commemorates something that happened when they came into the house where Jesus was, and they fall down and they worship, and they give him these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Don't you think that for Mary and Joseph, that had to be a marvelous and memorable moment? Don't you think that? I mean, here they are. You know, they're still kind of making sense of all that's happening to them, and then unannounced arrive these kind of regal-looking strangers who come in, and they're clearly not Jewish, they're clearly from another country. They come in and saying, we have come to look for the newborn king, and they fall down in worship. And Mary and Joseph must have just stood there thinking, this is amazing what's happening. But it doesn't last very long, because in a very short time, worship turns to warning because you look at verse 12 right after the magi worship look what happens in verse 12 and being warned in a dream not to return to herod they departed another way to their own country so they're worshiping and then god warns them and says don't go back to herod so they go another way and then verse 13 the warning comes to joseph Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Worship goes to warning, and Joseph and Mary have to flee for their lives. So instead of being adored, now Jesus is about to be annihilated by this king, this Herod, this paranoid but powerful king. And in very short order, Joseph and Mary, who have left their hometown up in Nazareth, now leave their home country and go south to Egypt. Can you imagine what they said to each other when they got to Egypt? I mean, here they are, political refugees, outsiders, I mean, life had changed so much, and probably the memory of those magi falling down and worshiping the baby Jesus seemed like a distant memory. It was out of sight because troubles were very much in sight. See, Jesus was born into a world where worship seems way too fleeting, where worshipers are few and enemies are many. Jesus was born into a world where instead of being honored, he's hunted. That's the first thing we see. But when Jesus goes to Egypt, troubles don't leave Israel. Back home in Israel, the troubles get worse after Jesus leaves. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were there two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. See, if in verses 13 to 15 we find that Jesus was born into a world where worship is too fleeting, now in verses 16 to 18 we find Jesus was born into a world where weeping is too frequent. Worship is too fleeting. Weeping is too frequent. There's lots of tears in verses 16 to 18, aren't there? We don't don't really like to associate sad tears with Christmas. Happy tears, that's okay. Happy tears when you get to see someone that you haven't seen, a, a family member who's distant, and you see them, and the tears roll down. We love that. But sad tears at Christmas, we don't like that. We don't like to think of the baby Jesus crying, but he did cry. We don't like to think of Mary and Joseph weeping, but after all the turmoil they go through with being hunted, having to make a a fast trip down to Egypt, being refugees, outsiders, it's hard to imagine that they didn't weep. It's hard to imagine they didn't shed some tears. We know back in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, there were many, many women and many men who shed many tears. Because Herod seeking Herod is powerful, Herod is paranoid, and he's out to destroy any rival. And he's heard there's a newborn king somewhere in the vicinity of Bethlehem. So he dispatches troops, and ruthlessly they seek out every little baby boy two years old or under, And they slaughter. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. See, Herod was a ruthless guy. What we know of him from history doesn't make us love him. It makes us loathe him. This is not the first time that Herod caused people to weep. This is not the first time he did atrocious things. By this time in Herod's reign, he had already put to death several of his wives and several of his sons. Augustus was reported to have said, I would rather be Herod's sow than Herod's son because he wouldn't eat pork, but he would kill his own boys. And then get this, near the end of Herod's life, he did something really dastardly. He invited all the Jewish nobles in the area, or at least many of them, he invited them to come see him. And when they came, he put them all under arrest, held them in uh, prison and gave this order because he knew he was about to die. He said, when I die, I want you to put to death all these Jewish leaders. That way, the people of Israel will not rejoice in my death, but they'll weep. Thankfully, that order was not carried out. They didn't put to, get to death those Jewish nobles. But sadly, the order that Herod gave here was carried out. We don't know how many Jewish baby boys were slaughtered, but we do know from verse 17 and 18 That there was loud lament. Look at it. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping, loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Jesus was born into a world where worship is too fleeting and weeping is too frequent. It's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? Troubles were not out of sight in Jesus' early years. But that's not the whole story in this text. That's not the whole story. In fact, the author, Matthew, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, chooses to embed several significant clues that let us know that there's a bigger story going on, that God is doing something bigger than what the people could understand, that God was at work in ways that many would have missed. Let me show you how that starts to come out. Let's pick up our story again in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I want you to notice the last sentence in verse 23. It says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he was he would be called a Nazarene. Ah, here's the bigger truth. See, we've already seen that Jesus was born into a world where worship is too fleeting. Jesus was born into a world where weeping is too frequent. But here's the third thing that runs. It's like a motif that runs through the whole storyline, and it's the big, larger truth that stabilizes us. I'd put it this way. Jesus was born into a world where the word of God is still fulfilled. Yes, worship is fleeting. Yes, weeping is frequent. But Jesus was born into a world, and in that world, in that messy world where he was born, in our world, the word of God is still fulfilled. See, verse 23 says something that's very significant. So what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That phrase actually shows up three times in our passage. What was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled. And each time, what it's saying to us is, in the midst of all this carnage, in the midst of all this chaos, God is still fulfilling his word. The word of God was going to be fulfilled. Let me show you the three occurrences. You might have missed them as we went through. Three times we're told the word of God would be fulfilled. Go with me. The first one is in verse 15. This is where Jesus is taken to Egypt by his parents, verse 15, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was, here's our phrase, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew says his parents fly down to Egypt, but this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, is a quotation from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And it's speaking about the nation, the nation of Israel. Because out of Egypt, remember they were slaves in Egypt, out of Egypt God chose his son. He pictures Egypt as his own child. He says, out of Egypt, under Moses I took and I called you out. But now the scriptures are saying, wait a second, wait a second. There was actually more to that prophecy than just the nation coming out of Egypt there was a larger fulfillment. There was a fullness that comes out because out of Egypt, God called his son Jesus. In his book, Matthew makes parallels between Jesus and the nation of Israel. Both of them went down to Egypt to, uh, for preservation. Both of them flew down to Egypt. Both of them were brought out of Egypt. Both of them went to the wilderness, the nation for 40 years, Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights. The difference is that Jesus is the obedient son where Israel unfortunately wasn't. But the the author Matthew is saying, listen, listen, in the midst of them having to leave Nazareth and go down to Bethlehem and leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt. In the middle of that, God is fulfilling his word. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Look with me in verses 17 and 18. After Herod slaughters the baby boys, verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A loud voice heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. There Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31, 15. And he says, you know, when Herod did that dastardly thing, there was a sense in which God had already said something like that was going to happen. Because in Ramah, there was a voice of loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. And what he does is he draws a, a parallel between Rachel, who was one of Jacob's wife, weeping because she couldn't have children for a long time. She wept for the children she wanted to have. And he says, now it's like the daughters of Rachel. Weep for the children that they had, but they've lost. And the author says, in some ways, God's word is showing a fullness. God knew this was going to happen. So we've seen God's word fulfilled in going to Egypt, even in the slaughter of the innocents. And then finally, the third one is in verse 23, it says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me ask you a question. Do you think being called a Nazarene was a good thing in Jesus' day or a bad thing? Thumbs up or thumbs down to being called a Nazarene? Yeah, thumbs down, right? Uh, Nazareth was this tiny little out-of-the-way burg. It was a tiny little, you know, backwater town, and it had a poor reputation, In fact, Nathanael, who was one of Jesus' first disciples, right, one of the 12, Nathanael, when he's first told about Jesus, do you remember this story? They say, come meet Jesus the Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. And Nathanael says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In other words, Nazareth, it's a write-off. If Jesus is from Nazareth, how can he be someone special? So Nazareth had a, a bad, lousy reputation. And yet it says here, Jesus went to live there, his parents brought him there, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, did you notice it said what was spoken by the prophets, plural, prophets? If you read through the Old Testament, you will not find a single prophet that says Jesus will be called a Nazarene. They don't say that explicitly, but what they say over and over is that he would be despised, he would be looked down upon, He would be treated with contempt. In fact, Isaiah said it this way. He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And Matthew says, even the fact he ends up in Nazareth. Wow, that's like fulfilling, bringing to fullness what the word of God said. He's going to be despised. He's going to be looked down upon. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see, what Matthew is trying to help us Understand is this: even in the midst of all of the troubles that were happening to Jesus and his family, God was still fulfilling His word, fulfilling His word. Jesus is born into a world where worship is too fleeting, where weeping is too frequent, but where God's word is being fulfilled. So, how does this apply to you? How do how do we bring this down to our day in our time? Let me close by just giving you two implications. Two things that I think can help bring brightness to your day and stability to your soul. Here's the first thing. You can go into this Christmas knowing this. Jesus knows what it's like to live in a broken world. I mean, you know that, but just let that come in. Jesus knows what it's like to live in a broken world where troubles are not out of sight. He knows that. When, when, when the Son of God incarnate came to our earth, he didn't choose to isolate or insulate himself from troubles. He came to a tear-stayed planet, and he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Here's how that helps me. Here's the how I think that can help you. For most people, Christmas is not a, a time that is only filled with joy. There's also some sorrow. And this year at COVID, there will be probably even more. Some of us have been stretched emotionally. Some of us are feeling a little less stable than we'd like to feel. Some of us are going to homes that are not necessarily peaceful and calm. Some of you are going to homes where loved ones that always came for Christmas will not come for Christmas. There will be an emptiness. There will be some sadness. And what I would say to you is this. The Savior who came to save you knows all about that. He experienced that. He tasted that. He was not insulated from that. Jesus knows what it's like to be born into a world that's broken. But here's the second truth you can hang on to. Jesus shows us that even in our world, God's word will not be broken. Like the world's broken But what Matthew is trying to help us all see is that even in that world, God's word will not be broken. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. You see, on one level, you could read the story of Jesus in these years and think, man, he was like the victim of circumstances. It's like things were happening in the world and he was just tossed around, jerked around by it. Herod decides to have a census. So that means his mother, who's highly pregnant, has to go all the way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Very inconvenient. Seems like Jesus is just a pawn in a big chess game run by political powers. And then Herod tries to kill him. So now he's forced to fly down to Egypt with his father and mother. It seems like Jesus' life is just kind of pushed around by bigger forces. But what Matthew is trying to say is, no, 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 don't don't, don't draw that conclusion. Even in that kind of world, God was still fulfilling his word. This was spoken to fulfill what the prophets had said. This was spoken to fulfill what the prophet had said. This was spoken to fulfill what the prophet said. In other words, in the midst of that world, God was at work accomplishing his word. So how does that help you? How does that help me? Here's what I would say to you. This Christmas, you can hang on to this fact that though the world still has plenty of troubles and maybe your own life and your own family situation is filled with more troubles than you would like to have, God is at work fulfilling his purposes. He is at work fulfilling his word. The things he's promised, he will do in spite of all that's going on. That's true on the macro level. In spite of COVID-19, in spite of political turmoil in the world, in spite of all the tensions in our world, God is still fulfilling his word. He did that in the first century. He's doing that in the 21st. It's also true on the micro level. It's true for you and your world, your little world. God is at work in your world, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God is at work for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean that all things that happen are good. It means that in all things God is working for the good of those who love him. So let me ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus? And you say, yes, I do. Then I say, then God's going to fulfill his word. He's going to be at work in all things, working his good purposes for you. He's going to make you more and more like your son, Jesus. He's going to carry you through. He will be Emmanuel, God with you. That's true this Christmas. So how do you have a merry little Christmas when troubles are not out of sight? You hang on to a larger truth that you keep your eyes on the God who oversees all the troubles and works in the midst of them to accomplish his word and take care of his people. He did that for Jesus. He does that for all who belong to him. Hang on to that this Christmas. Let's pray. I'm going to just give you a moment to talk to the Lord privately. I don't know what troubles are pressing in on you most right now, that that are tempting to just squeeze the joy out of your soul and make this Christmas somewhat dim and, and gloomy. But would you just ask the Lord to help you to see clearly the incredible reality that in the midst of all that happens, God's word is still being fulfilled. He's working his purposes. He did it for Jesus. He does it for all who belong to Jesus. Would you ask him to strengthen and stabilize your soul as you hang on to the truth that he is writing a bigger story, even in the midst of a broken world. Would you ask him to do that for you? Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that your son, our Savior, chose to be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all ways that we are, yet without sin. And therefore, we draw near to Jesus. He understands. We, we find in that great comfort, but Lord, we also find great strength in the fact that you not only understand our world, not only understand our troubles, but somehow in the midst of them, you are writing a story, a bigger story, that fulfills your purposes. Help us to hang on to that. Stabilize us in that truth. And then let us indeed have a merry little Christmas, not because troubles are out of sight, but because you are clearly in our sights. And I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. God bless you. And Merry Christmas.